couple of scriptures uh, to read before we talk about uh, the second one, which is our text. First from Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. There were prophets that were false who were saying that they were in Babylon for some other reason other than God sent them there. They were also saying that they should pray fervently against Babylon. But here's what the Lord says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your own sons. Give your own daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city. That's Babylon. Where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And then over in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks also, speaking or preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Someone has said that uh, what gives the teaching of Jesus Christ its distinction and its power, what is it that causes the teaching of Jesus to have such power? What is it that separates the teaching of Jesus from the teaching of the Koran or the teaching of the Buddha or the teaching of Confucius? What is it? And the answer is the risen Christ. The power of the risen Christ makes the teaching of Jesus powerful. And that's what we see in today's text. Brendan Manning writes, The most radical demand of the Christian faith for me lies in its summons to say yes to the risenness of Jesus in my life. To look for him. To look for him all around me. That's the challenge. And that's what he calls me to. One time, Frederick Beekner, who's a Presbyterian theologian, author, pastor, he was in an airport bar late at night. 
And he talks about it. He said, I went there because I was deeply discouraged. I had a morning flight and I decided I'd just go there because I'd like, I couldn't sleep. I wanted to be free of all of the hassles, so I took refuge in a bar. It had been a long few months of discouragement and actual depression. On top of that, I hated to fly, and so if I had a few drinks, calm me down a bit. So there I am all alone. I enter the bar. There's only one person there. That's the drowsy bartender. And there are bar stools all the way down the bar. They're all the same, and so I just indiscriminately picked one sat down with a head in my hands. And then I looked in front of me and there was a little menu that had the drink of the day. I looked to the left, to the right, I saw menus in front of every bar stool. But then I focused on my menu. And there on my menu was a little tie clip that had the initials C. F.B. engraved in it. Now, my first name is Carl, but with a C, but I never use it. If it had had a B on it, I'd think that was interesting. If it had an F.B., I would think that was astounding. But it had a C.F.B., my initials engraved in this tie clasp, and it was the only one in the entire bar. And suddenly I heard Jesus say to me, you're not alone. I've got you exactly where I want you. I am here to encourage you to look to me, not to yourself. Last week on Monday, Jay Mitlow preached his son's funeral, six years old. And the central feature of his message was this, that he understood why Trey had gotten cancer at age two and lived for four years and then died at six. He said, now don't get me wrong, I I didn't come to this easily or quickly. But I firmly believe that Trey got cancer so that you and I might see Jesus in him. And those that knew Trey best said that Jay was right. And in making that point, he quoted John 3.16, just the first half. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he stopped there and he said, you know what that means? That means God let his own son die. A few days later, we had breakfast together. Lunch. Lunch. And I said, let him die? He said, yeah, I was going to say make him die, but I thought some people might think that was just a little too strong. He sanctioned his son's death. John Stott, do you know that name? Famous 
great biblical scholar, died a few years ago, British. He said this, I could never believe in a God if it weren't for the cross. In a world of pain and anguish, how could anyone worship a God who's immune to it? Have you ever thought of Jesus' life in terms of pain and anguish? He was born into a poor family. In fact, his mother, when he was eight days old, brought a sacrifice, or actually bought a sacrifice at the temple according to the law for her own purification. And what was that sacrifice? Two pigeons. Sacrifice of a poor family. He grows up in a bad neighborhood. Early in his ministry, he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have no place to lay my head. When he's brought to trial, it's a complete miscarriage of justice. There's no notification. Both the law of the Jews and the law of the Romans said if someone was to be brought to trial, there had to be an adequate notification. There was no notification. It's in the middle of the night. There were never trials in the middle of the night. There's no defense counsel. There wasn't, there's always a defense counsel. And when the Roman governor knows that there is no case against him, he acquiesces to political pressure. And they torture him, put him to death. You know, in every way, Jesus identifies with the millions of prisoners all over the world that have been wrongly charged, wrongly imprisoned, stripped of their dignity, and slaughtered. And yet at the end of his ministry, he says, there's a time coming when there will be those who say to me, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked and imprisoned? And I will say to them, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Meaning what? Meaning on the cross, I was all those things. Hungry, thirsty, naked, imprisoned. You see, John Stott is right. A God who's immune to the pain of the poor and the needy is not a God worth believing in. And aren't you glad that we don't have to believe in a false God? We can believe in the only God who is Jesus Christ in the flesh. We serve a God who impoverished himself so that we could become rich. We serve a God who was condemned so that we might be free and acquitted. In fact, he was completely innocent and he became sin so that we who are sin might become completely innocent. Now that's the message of the gospel. And everywhere the early church went, they preached it. And they lived it. And so this morning I want to dig in and I want to see it with you today. First of all, notice if you will the territory. Look at verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. Now there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but Jews. 
Now, it's said at the time that Stephen was persecuted, there were 25,000 believers in Jerusalem. And when Saul comes to persecute them, many of them begin to scatter. And we saw it last week that some of them went to Damascus, 120 miles away, a six-day journey. And that's a long way to go. But it's interesting, Antioch was 350 miles away. And the Bible says, many go there. And when they get there, they find a city that is the third largest city in Asia Minor. It's the capital of Syria. It's a Roman province. And there are half a million people living there. And interestingly, at the time that they get there, with a half a million people living there, 120,000 of them are Jews. And so what do these disciples do who are Jewish? They speak to the other Jews. They eat with the other Jews. They welcome them. They demonstrate love and justice to them. As if the finished work of Jesus Christ was only efficacious or effective for Jews. Did you hear about the two women in New York, Jewish? One woman says to the other, hey, did you hear what's happening at the Vatican this weekend? The Pope has gathered all the cardinals together and they're going to make a declaration that the Jews were not responsible for the death of Jesus. The other woman said, well, who do you think was responsible? She said, well, we, we really, really don't know, but I think they suspect the Puerto Ricans. Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's no bondage. And yet in verse 19, we see all kinds of bondage. We see a lack of freedom. We see Jews serving other Jews. And if that's all we see in this text, that's really not the signature of Jesus. But Luke goes on. So let's look at the touch. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believe turned to the Lord. Now, who's he talking about here? He's talking about Greeks. He's talking about Jewish believers who come from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, and those who come even from North Africa. And they begin to speak to the Greeks, and the Greeks begin to come into their homes, they come into their temple, as it were, into their fellowship, and they believe. Why do they believe? Why do they turn to the Lord? Luke tells us, because the hand of the Lord was with them. 121 times in the Bible we see that expression, the hand of the Lord, and every time it's associated with one thing, the power of God. And so I ask you, why is the power of God on these Cyprians and these Cyrenians as they witness, they're Jews, but they're witnessing to Greeks, why is the Spirit of the Lord and the power of the Lord and the hand of the Lord on them? The Spirit of the Lord is on them. The power of the Lord is on them because they're going beyond themselves. The hand of the Lord is on those who turn away from their prejudice and who discover that the Greeks are just like the Jews and they're just like them. 
And I love what Luke says. They believe and turn to the Lord. Now, the Greek word there for turn means to convert. It's not the same word as repentance, but it's very close. To repent means that you actually begin to see things the way God sees them. You agree with God. And so what are these Greeks doing? They're agreeing that Jesus is the only sufficient means by which they can be forgiven. They're agreeing that Jesus is the only sufficient means by which they can be freed from their bondage. They're believing that Jesus is the only sufficient means for true fellowship between other people. You see, all of their needs are being met in Christ because of the hand of God has touched them. Third, notice the testimony. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, why would the church in Jerusalem send one of their principal disciples, Barnabas, to go 350 miles away to Antioch? Well, there are at least three reasons. First of all, he's from Cyprus. And so there's a natural affinity between these witnesses who come from Cyprus and Barnabas. Secondly, his name means encourager or consoling one, and that's exactly the same name Jesus attributes to the Holy Spirit. And so when Luke says he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of the Holy Spirit even in his name, Barnabas, encourager. But the last reason they send Barnabas is the most important, because they have heard that the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, between Jews and Greeks, has broken down, and they've heard that this has happened, and they know if it's true, it's the signature of Jesus. Tim Keller, at the, near the end of his book, Generous Justice, tells the story of a woman who's wealthy, she's old, And she's getting ready to die, and she's putting her affairs together, and she has no children, no heirs. In fact, the only relative is a distant nephew. And so she's thought for years that he would inherit all of her stuff. And yet she's begun to hear that he is a little different to everyone else but her. To her, he's loving, he's kind, he's generous. But she's hearing that he might actually be a different kind of person. And so she decides to test it. One night she dresses up in old tattered clothes. She puts dirt on her face. And she goes to his brownstone apartment in New York City. And she lays down on one of the lowest steps right next to the street. And she waits for him to come out in the morning to go to work. And so the moment comes, he opens the door, he looks down and sees this homeless person. And he begins to curse her and say, you better get out of here, I'm going to call the cops on you. And instantly she knows his heart. His response to the poor and to the needy reveals his true character. You know what the writer of Proverbs says? He who oppresses the poor shows contempt 
for his maker. Now, the poor extends beyond the financially poor. The poor of spirit. The poor who are outside your own circle. You see, those in Jerusalem know what doing justice and loving kindness means. It means seeing Jesus in the poor and needy. It means the woman who's sleeping on the, your step, who's entirely different from you, is at that moment Jesus to you. It means that overlooked neighbor who you've either overlooked because you don't care or because you hate him. Jesus is saying, that's me. That means those who are different from us are at that in their difference just like Jesus. And our attitude toward them reflects our attitude toward him. And then fourth, notice the title. Look at verse 26. And when Barnabas found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now notice who it is that's calling them Christians. It's not themselves, it's the world. The suffix. I-A-N means to belong to. It means to be part of. The prefix is Christ himself. So a Christian is one who belongs to Christ, who's part of Christ. And it's interesting, that goes exactly with great consistency to Paul's preaching. Remember what he says to the Colossians? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember what he says to the Philippians? For me to live is as Christ To die is gain. In either case, the believer, according to Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the one who was caught up into the third heaven and spent time with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, he is making it clear that these believers are not their own. They not only belong to Jesus Christ, Jesus is in them, through them, all around them. And the world's seeing it. Now, what is it that causes the Antiochians to identify these believers as little Christs? It's not their teaching. It's their attitude. It's their actions. It's their doing justice, loving kindness. It's the signature of Jesus. You know, of all of the people who've lived in the history of the church since the cross, there is no one that has written on this with more clarity and with more careful attention than Jonathan Edwards. According to Jonathan Edwards, there's only one way that any of us has ever drawn out of serving ourselves and into serving unselfishly others. And that is this, that we come to see in some measure the beauty of Jesus. Tim Keller gives an example of this. He said, let's suppose you listen to Bach 
Johann Sebastian Bach. And the reason you listen to Bach is because you want to feel cultured. You want other people to hear that you listen to Bach. And he says the music of Bach then is a means to an end. And the end is enhancing your own self-image. But let's say you listen to Bach, not because it's helpful, but because it's beautiful. The music then is an end in itself. And what Edward says, it's the same thing in loving and serving others. If you serve them, and you appear to love them, so that others think well of you, or so that you think well of yourself, those people are a means to an end, which is supporting your own self-image. It's pride, it's arrogance, it's the antithesis of love. But if you see Jesus as beautiful, if you see Him growing in your eyes as a God who is incredibly beautiful to love you in the midst of all of your crap, you will begin to see others as He sees them. And you're going to see their need and their poverty as a need and a poverty that you yourself have had that Jesus himself has met. That's exactly what we see these Christians doing in Antioch. And the world sees it too. They begin to call them Christians, little Christs. And when the world sees them, They see the signature of Jesus. Why do they see it? Because the eyes of these disciples are fixed on the beauty of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you something. When the world sees us, do you think they see him? When the world sees us, do they see us as being people who love to do justice and love to extend mercy? You know, the more beautiful Jesus becomes to us, the more they'll see doing justice and loving kindness is the fruit of being with Him. They'll see us loving the city. They'll see us like being exiles in a city and a nation as corrupt as Babylon. And they'll see that we are people who hear God say, love them, pray for them, encourage them, because as they are loved and prayed for and encouraged, they will prosper and they will see me and I will change them and I will change you. May we, by His grace, 
Hear what he says and do it. Amen.